0: you would turn with me to the book of Esther. You will notice from your bulletin that I am not David King. And while we will be in Esther 3, there is a little bit of a difference here. Um, The title of this sermon is not The Clash of Two Kingdoms. That's the title of David's sermon. The title of this sermon is Dark Days for the People of God. And I don't know how similar it is. I didn't trade notes with David, but I trust that we'll continue on through the book of Esther. David is not feeling well, and so it it falls to the senior pastor to come and to uh, fill the pulpit. And I'm glad to do so. This will be uh, my last sermon for a while, with uh, a break for vacation. Um, I will be gone the next three Sundays from you all, and so I appreciate your prayers as we take our vacation. But this evening we are in Esther chapter 3. And so I would encourage you to give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Esther chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them, if it please the king. Let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, of king Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods." A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this evening that you would teach us from your word, that you would remind us that you are indeed the sovereign king over all events, the sovereign king of the universe. And that even as we study this, your word, we would be reminded that you are not just sovereign over the days and events of Esther, but over our days and our events also. We ask, Lord, that you would show us this clearly, and we ask it in Christ's precious name, amen. Well, we come now to chapter 3 of the book of Esther, and what we are seeing is that the plot now thickens. We've seen in the first chapter of this book of a picture of the world's empire and all of its power and all of its worldly glory. And then in the second chapter, we are given a vision of those who live on the edges of that society. We're introduced to Esther and to Mordecai. And in terms of the Persian Empire, they are nobodies, but they are brought by God's providence into the inner circles of this empire. Esther is made queen of Persia. And Mordecai is brought into the inner circle of the king's leaders. We see here, particularly at the end of chapter 2, something that will become very important, not just later in this book, but is important for us to remember right now in this chapter. That Mordecai discovered a plot to murder the king. And he told the king and his army about this. And that plot was foiled And the king lived because of the work of Mordecai. And now what we have here laid out before us is a dark time for the people of God. And that's actually the first thing that I want us to see this evening. I want us to see that what we have here is a dark time. It begins at verse 1 of chapter 3 with the promotion for Haman. Haman is made the prime minister of the Persian kingdom. Now what does that mean? It means that Haman is now the deputy, as it were, to the king. The king is still completely in authority, but Haman is his second in command, if you will. We have read about satraps. We have read about provincial leaders. But here, Haman is brought right up next to the throne. And there is a respect that comes with this office. You will notice we see this in verse 2, that all the king's servants bow down and pay homage to Haman. And they do this because it is something that the king has commanded. It's not something that's spontaneous. It's not that everyone loves Haman and wants to show him honor and respect. No, it is at the command of the king of the Persian Empire. And they know full well if they do not heed that command that it will not go well with them we are being set up now to see how the king's command is universalized in this empire i want you to just notice with your eyes quickly how often the author uses the word all here we see it in verse 1 we see it again in verse 2 again in verse 6 and again in verse 8 And again, in verses 12 and 13 and 14, all the people, all the officials, this is a universal command, except Mordecai refuses to honor Haman. We see this in verse two, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the immediate question that comes to our mind is why? Why would Mordecai not want to pay homage to Haman, the leader of the Persian kingdom? Now, lest you think this is because Mordecai is kind of a, a stick in the mud, an overly scrupulous man, we have to remember that he would bow down to the Persian king. He would obey the other commands of the king of Persia. It's not as if he is a scrupulous Pharisee. After all, he has let his stepdaughter marry the Persian king. Something that was clearly against the law of God. Intermarriage. Yet, here he is very particular not to bow down to Haman. Why? Well, I don't think it's because it would be considered an act of worship. It's not like Daniel and those who were with him who would not bow down to the idol... It's not like those who refuse to bow down to idols who are set up in various foreign kingdoms. No, that's not what's going on here. It's not that they're being called to worship Haman. It's that he doesn't want to do this for a particular reason. I think the answer is found in Haman's name. Not just Haman. But if you'll notice with me in verse 10, he is Haman, the Agagite. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, an Agagite is a descendant of the tribe of Amalek. And we don't know exactly how Haman made it all the way over from the land of Amalek to Persia. But after all, the Persian Empire and the Babylonians were in control of this area. And they moved peoples from place to place. And Amalek was an ancient enemy of the Israelites. You may remember in Exodus chapter 17, they went to war against the people of Israel as they were in the wilderness. They tried to stop Israel from making it to the promised land. Amalek was an enemy of Israel. But there's more than that. He's not just Haman the Amalekite. He's Haman the Agagite. And you may not remember where that name comes from, but I would point your attention to 1 Samuel 15. You may remember when Saul, the king of Israel, went to war against Amalek. And he was told by the Lord to put all of Amalek to the sword. To put all of the people and all of their possessions to devote them to the Lord and to destroy them. And you may remember when Samuel came after the victory of the people of Israel, he looked at Saul and he said, Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? And the accusation there is, you have disobeyed God. And Saul, I imagine, in stammering language said, um, Well, you have to understand what was going on here, Samuel. The, the, the people... It's the people. They wanted me to keep the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and and to use that and I was going going to sacrifice to to the Lord from here. Samuel says to Saul, you're obviously disobedient and you are the one who is the king here, not the people. And then you may recall that the king of the Amalekites is brought out King Agag. And The text is very descriptive. He comes out with a smile on his face because he says to himself, the bitterness of death is past. I'm in the clear. I'm not going to be put to death. Saul is not going to kill me. Samuel takes a weapon and he hacks Agag to pieces, killing him and telling Saul that this is what he should have done. That he should have obeyed the Lord. To obey the Lord is better than sacrifice. And so we see here an ancient enmity, not just between Amalek and Israel, but between the family of Agag and Israel. Now it gets more interesting. Mordecai, you will recall, if you turn back to chapter 2, verse 5, is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish a Benjamite. Who else was a Benjamite? Who else was a descendant of Kish? Why, it's Saul himself. Saul is the son of Kish. Saul was a Benjamite king. Before Daniel became king, and the crown went to the tribe of Judah, Benjamin was the royal tribe. And so what we see here is it's very likely that Mordecai is related to Saul. That Mordecai knows this story. That Mordecai knows what befell Saul and his entire family for disobeying God. And so it's perfectly obvious, I think, that Mordecai was telling others when it said that he told them that he was a Jew. There was more to it than that. He probably told others around him, I'm not bowing down to this man I'm descended from a line of kings. And let me tell you about this man and his family and what they've done to our people and how they were destroyed by our people. How dare I bow down to him? This is presumably why Mordecai's Jewishness became an issue in verse 4. But there's something actually behind the conflict. We might compare this to the story of Daniel. Why is Mordecai taking this stand? How many other compromises has Mordecai made? Is he keeping all of the food laws? Probably not. He's not obeying in other areas. As we've said, Esther has married a Gentile king. And so we might think about Mordecai here using one of Jesus' phrases. Mordecai is actually straining at gnats, and swallowing a camel. I won't bow down to Haman, but go ahead, daughter, and marry a pagan king. Go ahead and do that. And so what we have to see here is that past sins continue to haunt us. Here with Mordecai, the past sins of his forefather haunt him. But there's more than that. There is an ancient struggle playing out here in Persia. It's the ancient struggle of seeds. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see that battle in Genesis 3. We see it in the life of Abraham. We see it in the bondage of Israel. We see it in the days of Moses. We see it throughout the kingdom of Israel, how the seed of the serpent seeks to destroy the seed of the woman. It seeks to overcome godliness. It is a spirit and a seed of Antichrist that seeks to destroy the people of God. So I might ask you at this time in this place, how do you spell Antichrist? I think you spell it H A M. A-N. You spell Antichrist, Haman. So we must understand that that battle is before us even today. There may not be a specific Haman who is before us. But the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in America today. I know many of us have rejoiced this past Friday with... The Supreme Court ruling overturning abortion on demand in the case of Roe versus Wade. But have you been seeing the spirit that is alive and well in our nation? I don't know that it was encapsulated any better by a picture I saw of a pregnant woman with her belly exposed and the words, not a human, written over it. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in our day. And even when God gives us victories, Satan does not give up. He will never give up until he is condemned and cast into the lake of fire. And the final victory is won by King Jesus when he returns. So we need to remember that. These are dark days. Well, the second thing that I want us to see is ask a question. Is it dark because the light has been put out? Look with me at verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now notice what Haman does is he hides his fury in verse 6. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Haman is a man whose hatred burns slow and hot. He doesn't just gather up some troops and kill Mordecai. No, he wants a revenge that is not just on Mordecai, not just on his family, but on all of his peoples. The delay is so that he can ha- hatch a grand plan to destroy every single one of the Jews. And so, what, Mo- what Haman does is he goes to the king and he comes to him with a good backstory. He says in verse 8, there is a certain people scattered abroad and they are throughout your entire empire and their laws are different than your other laws. Now, so far, so good, he's explaining exactly who the Jews are, but he gives a half truth here. He says their laws are different than yours. And that is true in some respect, but not in basic respects. The kingdom of Persia would have laws against theft against bearing false witness, against murder, against dishonoring parents. Those laws should sound familiar to you. So even though the Jews would have some different laws, they would have other laws that are quite the same as the Persian laws. And then what he does is he begins to give a particularly deceptive lie. He says that... They are not to the profit of the king to tolerate them. Because they don't keep the king's laws. They're against you, king. Now, all you need to do is to look down at your Bibles and go up about two inches, and you'll see this is a lie. Because all Mordecai needed to do if he was really against the king was keep his mouth shut. And the assassins would have killed the king. But Mordecai went out of his way to preserve the life of this king, he went out of his way, if I can be a bit anachronistic, to live out Romans 13, to be good to the leader that God had placed in authority over him. So or Haman is hiding his fury. He's trying to give a backstory as to what he will do, and then he comes to the king and speaks the king's language in verse nine. "If it please the king, and you do this for me, you destroy these people. I will pay 10,000 talents. He comes with a very good bribe. Now, our attention then is turned to the king, Ahasuerus. And we see that he has different priorities from the people of God. Do you notice that the king can't even be bothered to find out what's actually going on? Do you see this in verse 11? The king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. He doesn't check out what's happened. He doesn't try to investigate whether the Jews are subverting his kingdom. He doesn't find out who Mordecai is. We know this because later on when he realizes who Mordecai is, he reverses himself. He's making no effort at all. He has no interest in law or in truth. What is motivating him, though, is greed. 10,000 talents of a bribe. Now, to give you an idea of how huge a bribe this is, the Greek historian Herodotus described this great Persian empire, and he said one year's tax revenue for this empire was 14,560 talents. That means Haman is offering 75% of the kingdom's budget as a bribe. Stop and think about that for a moment. Now you know this. I'm old enough to remember the saying about America, a million here and a million there, soon you're talking about real money. In our current government, it's more often now a billion here and a billion there, and now you're talking about real money. This is an equivalent bribe in our nation of trillions given our budget. That's the size of this bribe. And so there is, I think, a play on words here. You see, we are told by Haman in verse 8 that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate the Jews. But it's certainly to the king's profit to take this bribe. It's as if the king's advisors came to him and said, listen, it's the economy, stupid. Take the money. Who cares about justice? Who cares about anything else? Take the money. Now, this, I think, should be something you and I should think about tonight. How do we make decisions and how do we think about decisions? Think about political decisions. Here we have the king who takes the signet ring from his hand and hands it to Haman. But the question I ask you is, who wears the signet ring in America today? Why, it's you and me. Under the Constitution, the people of America are the ones who elect representatives. The president may sit in the Oval Office, but the people are the ones who are given the power and authority to elect representatives. We don't have a king. We have representatives and senators and an executive office. And so when you make these decisions, how do you vote? Do you vote for your pocketbook above other things? Let me just give you one example. It's become controversial in the last 10 years or so to allow politically, uh, uh, governmentally funded Scientific research using stem cells from aborted children. We even had a Christian leader mock other Christians for voicing concern about that during the coronavirus pandemic. He's been recorded as doing this. As saying that Christians who oppose this are some kind of yokels and they don't understand science. Do you take the time to figure these things out? To think about the morality of the decisions that our government makes and who you vote for. Because you see, that takes some work. That takes some digging. You can't just vote on party lines. You can't just take someone else's word for it. You can't be lazy like the king. You need to think about these things and how you honor the Lord your God in everything you do. Including governmental leadership. But even more so, what about your personal decisions? Do you think carefully about those? Are your decisions gospel-based decisions? I'll give you just one example. One of the first pieces of advice that I give any student who's getting ready to go to college is make sure that at the top of the list of all of the requirements of your school, is that there is a godly, good church within distance that you can attend. Far too many Christians look at placement rates, at football teams' records, and cost, and the beauty of the buildings, or the fame of the faculty. And then they wonder why their children go off to school for four years and come back rebelling against the faith. Because they spend four years never under God's word, never in fellowship with God's people, never accountable to others who would mentor them and encourage them. Our decisions need to be gospel-based decisions. Many will sell their integrity for a stew of pottage. They will sell out their integrity for a moment of pleasure or to get something For free. Because they take it. This is something that we must look at. Well, the third and final thing that I want us to see is to ask the question, is there hope? This is a difficult chapter. There's not really a ray of sunshine at the end of this chapter. We have to think about the rest of this book in order to understand where the Lord is taking us. There is a hard reality that we are faced with that gives no hope. This edict goes forth. Haman had planned it all. He had consulted the stars. That's what the taking of lots is. He wants the perfect time to talk to the king. And Susa is in confusion. They know the reality of what's going on. This is not unlike Matthew 2, verse 3, with Herod, who is determined to kill the Messiah. And all of Judea is in confusion it seems like nothing can stop it. Remember, the laws of Persia can't be changed. All of the people of God are in Ahasuerus' power. Look at verse 11. The people are yours, he says. This is just one of those things that we have no hope for. But let me remind you of something. More than 50 years ago, the law of the land was changed so that anyone, for any reason, could kill a child in the womb. And God's people prayed, and they marched, and they spoke, and they voted, and they held to God's truth. And God didn't change our nation in a week or a month. Or even a decade, 50 long years have passed. I had the privilege to speak to one of our members this morning who has headed up a pregnancy help center who has fought against the scourge of abortion for decade upon decade. And I went up to her and I said, the day we've prayed for for so long has come, hasn't it? God brought deliverance. And yet even in this The end is not before us. It's not as if in every place in the United States, abortion is illegal. There are still states within our union that have the same kinds of laws with respect to life in the womb that North Korea has. Not France. Not England. Not Peru. North Korea. So our work is not done. It may seem dark to us. But there's always hope when we know that God is in control and he's sovereign. You see, the higher reality that we know is that all our hope is vested in the Lord. Not in our leaders, not in our laws, not in our persuasive speech. Our hope is vested on the sovereign king of the universe. The people of God are not the kings to give away. They are God's. Proverbs 16, 9 tells us, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. You see, God himself could rightly destroy us. We deserve his wrath. But instead, he sends his Son. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Unlike King Ahasuerus, instead of sending out letters of death, God sends out a letter of life for his people. And that letter of life, beloved, is you. It's me. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. We are an epistle of life for the gospel to a watching world. And so today and this week as you go about your life, I want you to remember that when the day is dark, God is in control. When life seems hard, the Lord is still on the throne. Let us be thankful for that and let us seek our Lord in all things. Let's pray.